Good morning, three minutes after 8 o'clock. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Well, three big mergers to tell you about this morning. One you can see in the papers, but two that you cannot. Charter Communications makes a $61 billion bid for Time Warner Cable. Yes, that is $61 billion U.S. dollars. Google is buying Nest for $3.2 billion. And the one that's in the papers, uh, Japan's Suntory making a move on Maker's Mark Maker, Jim Beam. And for your edification this morning, three nice little teases. We'll start with this one first on the Suntory deal. So we are seeing more risk appetite here in the M&A market. Potentially, this is a sign of it. Yes, that is Christina Aleshi, the deal reporter for Bloomberg. And she talks a little bit about the significance of the deal. And this is their attempt to go up against the giants out there like Pernod and Diageo. And, you know, they're going to try and hedge their bets. And even if they're not going to get the kind of growth that they would want out of the American market, they are going to make money taking the American brands to the emerging Asia market. Interesting, paying 25% premium for that American liquor maker. So more details on that in a minute. Also, the policy address coming up tomorrow here in Hong Kong. We'll look at what might be announced. Nobody should live uh, at a level where they do not have sufficient funds to live a normal and uh, reasonable life. And therefore, the level of social security should be set at a level that allows that to occur. That's the former Jardines chief, Anthony Nightingale, calling there for an increase in CSSA payments here in Hong Kong. We'll hear more from Mr. Nightingale a bit later in the program. In our featured segments this morning, Markets with Graham Bibby from Richmond Asset Management. Graham is a specialist at spotting trends, and so we'll see whether any kind of trend is developing or the latest momentum, whether it's changing a bit. And we'll get some tips for 2014. Also on deck is Robert Greaves from Hamilton advisors on the rise of personally branded journalism. What the hell is that? Well, think of high flyers like Glenn Greenwald and perhaps even Michael Chugani uh, here in Hong Kong. We'll also be speaking with Sean Ryan of China Market Research. Sean always has a few pearls of wisdom about consumer trends in China. He'll be talking about rising wages and other headwinds uh, in um, or to mainland manufacturing. Six minutes now after eight o'clock. This is Money for Nothing on Radio 3. Well, more now on that Suntory takeover. Well, actually, let's uh, take a peek at the markets here before we get to the uh, takeover stuff, because we see some quite interesting action. Big sell-off in Japan with the holiday yesterday. And, of course, with the dollar sinking, the yen rising, that's not good for Japanese uh, exporters. The Nikkei down 1.7%, a 265-point uh, downdraft to 15646 In Australia, the ASX 200 off about 1%. In uh, Seoul, the Kospi down one-fifth of a percent, just three points down to 1945. Okay, more now on that Suntory takeover of Jim Beam, privately held Suntory, paying $13.6 billion for the U.S. liquor company. 
Big deal for Centauri. Obviously, Centauri's brand is very big in Japan itself. You know, they don't only make liquor, they make soft drinks. This that basically you can't go a day in Japan without running into Centauri if you're going to drink that day. And this is their attempt to go up against the giants out there like Pernod and Diageo. And, you know, they're going to try and hedge their bets. And even if they're not going to get the kind of growth that they would want out of the American market, they are going to make money taking the American brands to the emerging Asian market. Again, Christina Lessie, the Bloomberg deal reporter, she says being private will actually make the deal a bit easier for Suntory. So they don't have the shareholders that are going to get down their necks for paying a 25% premium. Obviously, not only is this a big premium, but they have to borrow a lot of money too, right? They're, they're taking advantage of the low interest rate environment in Japan, and they're going to go ahead and borrow, not to mention the fact cross-border deals are risky because there are all sorts of integration issues, currency fluctuations that you have to take into account. So we are seeing more risk appetite here in the M&A market. Potentially, this is a sign of it. So that's a pretty big deal, but this is a whale of a deal, if it happens, may not. Charter Communications is offering to buy Time Warner Cable for $132.50 a share, according to various news outlets. The offer would value Time Warner at $61.3 billion U.S. dollars. It's one of the biggest acquisitions in many years. Instead of pursuing negotiations, though, Charter is taking its case directly to shareholders. It will begin courting major holders of Time Warner stock seeking to persuade them to vote for a deal. This deal may not go through, though, because Charter's offer of $132.50 is only a few cents above um, Monday's closing price of $132.40. And also another deal, Google buying Nest Labs, California-based company, for $3.2 billion. Nest produces smart home appliances. It makes a thermostat capable of learning user behavior and working out whether a building is occupied or not. It uses temperature, humidity, activity, and light sensors. Okay, let's take a look at Wall Street. Stocks down pretty sharply overnight. The S&P 500, its biggest loss in two months. Much of the selling could be attributed to concerns over valuations that after the benchmark indices were up at record highs at the end of last year. The S&P 500 down 1.3% at 1819. The Dow Jones Industrial Average off 179 or 1.1% at 16,257. Henry McVeigh at KKR says, stay with stocks, though, and shun government bonds. When we first got to KKR, I think our view was you could step into credit and get equity-like returns, but without the volatility of of equities. Um, And what we said going into 2013 is to focus more on risk assets, equities, and private credit in particular. And so we have a very similar view this year, which is that you're going to be compensated to stay out of of government bonds. And I think overall, what I would say is traditional asset allocation or macro is you buy government bonds when there's dislocation in the market. And what we're saying is actually government bonds pose among the greatest risk in the market. So that is, uh, he took his whole team to KKR. And uh, again, uh, he was, uh, that's Henry McVeigh, talking about uh, whether or not you should stick with um, stocks or uh, switch back into bonds. He is uh, quite definitively on the side of stocks. The yield on the 10-year, by the way, fell three basis points to 2.83%, the lowest in a month. Of course, that indicates that people were buying bonds. Good morning now to Graham Bibby, Chief Executive of Richmond Asset Management. Graham, 
Good morning. Good morning. And it's really nice to have you in the studio. I always get a kick out of talking <laughs> to you because you're such a good trend spotter. Uh, however, we seem to be, at least in the eyes of some, maybe... Uh, possibly at a change. I don't know how you feel. Uh, you know, people bought equity, you know, to beat the band last year, and now all of a sudden we've seen a few days of selling. Well, I think the market's just in a bit of uh, profit taking at the moment. Obviously, we reached those new highs. Um, I've actually, over the start of this year, you, you, every year you do extensive analysis uh, for the forthcoming year, and I've never found so many undervalued. Uh, high earnings growth stocks as I'm finding right now. So the overall market might be a bit overextended, but it broke out of that sideways range that was going on from June to October. So I just think this is just a temporary pullback. So it's not just a melt up for the markets, but there are a lot of individual opportunities that you see. And I I guess you're talking about the U.S. market at the moment? Yeah, yeah, as you know, that... um, I, I, I took a hiatus from the markets to, to write a book and ended up writing four, and the first one's just come out. Um, and when I was doing that, I was distilling 30 years of, of knowledge down to, you know, why, why do stocks rise? And it's all down to um, the forward earnings projections by the, the brains of the industry, let's say, and the relative PE. So I'm finding stocks that instead of uh, looking at the average of the S&P, which is looking at 10% per annum forward earnings growth. I'm finding stocks that are growing 15 to 30% per annum, and the PE is not a premium like the S&P, which is about 15 and a half, so with 55% premium. I'm finding stocks, uh, in one instance, is 27% earnings growth, and the PE ratio is 6. So it's at a huge discount to its growth. Let's name some names uh, because, you know, we had overnight Goldman coming out with the report saying that, um, you know, stocks were a bit overvalued. And uh, it depends on how you look at it. Uh, If you look at uh, Robert Schiller's um, uh, P.E. metric, uh, things look a little overvalued. But you're talking about some individual companies that you find attractive. What are they? Well, I look at um, 20 sectors and at any one stage, I have roughly 200 stocks that fit my criteria. Um, and typically we'd be invested in 25 of those because even though something's cheap, it could get cheaper. So as you know, I'm the original trend is your friend guy, so I follow those trends. And one would be, for example, Jazz Pharmaceutical, which um, no one seems to have ever heard of, but um, its earnings growth forecast by 16 of the top analysts that watch it is 24% per annum, and the PE ratio is 13 mm. Now, that stock, because people don't understand how stocks work, that's why I wrote my first book, Master Your Mind, Master Your Money, and I've got a copy here for you for bedtime reading. But um, (laughs) (laughs) Jazz Pharmaceutical is currently 146, and it's got that matrix, so it's really cheap, it's got strong earnings growth, but in 2009, that stock was 10 cents. People don't realize how much these earnings growth stocks can grow. And I went back and analyzed virtually every year since the beginning of uh, 1900. And it's phenomenal what can happen to these companies. Just curious if anybody has their phone out. If they do, please put it uh, on the floor or in the back pocket. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, I, I, you know, the U.S. has got such a huge universe of stocks. Uh, uh, are you looking in Hong Kong a little bit to try to bring this home to uh, uh, listeners here? Although I know a lot of listeners are also buying uh, stocks in Europe and America and Japan mm-hmm. and elsewhere. Uh, anything in Hong Kong that catches your eye? 
Well, again, um, as you know, I study 46 different world markets, and I made my life so complicated. So I look at sectors, I look at um, commodities. Um, last week, silver and gold, uh, it seems to me, may have given a new buy signal. But in Asia, you know, it's been under pressure. Latin America has been under pressure. And let's let's have a look at what is a Hong Kong stock or what is a China stock. Mm. Um, again, in my book, one of my books, How to Make Insane Profits from China, I'm saying that a lot of companies that you may be listed in America, to me, are not American stocks, like Starbucks or, or Las Vegas Sands. All their growth is coming from China. So right now, the universe is huge in the U.S. It's very, very liquid, very transparent, and some of the brains of the industry, your Goldman's, your J.P. Morgan's, do analysis on these companies. Uh, saves me doing it. And if I find 16 of them forecast 27% earnings growth, I can roughly believe it. So then I look at the P.E. So right now, I'm looking at Asia. Indonesia, Thailand, to me, look like they could be bottoming because um, I'm a bit of a contrarian there as well, but there's no buy signals at the moment. Okay. Um, looking at gold and silver, since you men- mentioned you saw possibly a bottoming out trend mm. there, uh, it's true that gold had fallen quite sharply, and now it seems to sort of be bumping along, you know, in that high 11s to low 12s. Uh, 1253.10 is the current price. Um, <coughs> so it's come up a little bit off the bottom. Uh from a fundamental standpoint, why? And would you buy some here? Well, first of all, you have to look at, you have choices, right? You, ha- you could buy physical gold and you could buy physical silver. So if I was going to buy one, I'd buy silver. But then you need to look at the stocks in, in the, the, all the companies in that universe. And there are certain companies that have fallen 80 to 90% in the last 15 months, which is uh, irrational exuberance in reverse, if you like, because gold and silver haven't done that. So what, what I'm looking at right now is the gold and silver shares index, which was up roughly 2 to 3% on Friday, up roughly the same thing today. And certain stocks are popping 9 10%, because if you've gone from 100 to 10 there's plenty of upside. So I'll be looking at the stocks as opposed to the physical metals. The thing that um, seems to be happening at the moment, Graham, uh, with with stocks and perhaps with gold as well is, you know, with this taper plan by the Fed, uh, it's all well and good if that's happening at a time when the economy is strong. And we saw several days of of trading uh, very well, uh, even with the taper there. Uh, But now you see some weakness, potential weakness in the U.S. economy. The last thing people want to do, I think, is buying stocks when the Fed is hell-bent on tapering and the economy is not doing well. Mm. Well, then again, you have to look at... It's it's all to do with the psychology of the market, as you know. And right now, where are you going to place your money? If you were not a speculative person in any shape or form through the boom and after the boom, uh, since 2008, you've been eating your capital because you get no return in the bank. And if you take how many years that is, it's five to six years. If you're taking 5% income, you've lost 25% of your value. So people are de facto being forced to go into something. And it has the, one of the beneficiaries has been uh, the stock market. Um, you know, March 2009, I called the breakout in the market. And to me, I still think we're in that bull cycle. Now, yes, okay, tapering has come in. Uh, if you get tapering accelerating, you need to have an improving economy. 
A contrarian view would be that you can't get inflation uh, if you haven't got it already uh, with tapering uh, coming in. But I, I'm, I always look at what's most out of favour and people are hating gold and silver because they've yeah. held it all through these years. And I wouldn't be surprised that the economy does pick up more and then we get some inflation into the system. Okay, Graham, thanks very much for your insights today. Always a pleasure. Graham Bibby, Chief Executive of Richmond Asset Management. We also have Sean Ryan on the line with us now, Managing Director of China Market Research. Sean, good morning. Great to be here. Yes, uh, looking at uh, what we have been seeing in terms of the latest trends in China, uh, this latest uh, trade report seemed to signify that consumers were still doing okay. Um, Is that because their wages are up, or what is actually powering that? Well, the job market is still really quite strong, Brian. So I think what we've seen is about 50% of GDP growth in 2013 actually came from domestic consumption. And what's happening is is China obviously is shifting from being heavy investment-oriented in an economy more towards services. And so what's happened is that it's still a really good job market for blue-collar workers. Their salaries are going up about 15% a year right now still. And so consumer confidence remains strong at the lower income level. And then the wealthy have just gotten richer in the last couple of years. And that's why you're seeing um, consumption is going strong. Retail sales came in at about 13.7% last month. Tourism is continuing to boom as people are uh, looking for more experiential um, ways to spend their money. It's interesting because we see that China has a high Gini coefficient. uh, And in America, people at the lower end are not spending. That's why I see trouble in retail right now. But you see big ticket items selling pretty well, housing and autos and and the like. But uh, it's right across the board, uh, solid job growth in China, in your view? Well, it's quite interesting, actually. What we find um, is the most optimistic consumers right now are people who are in the low-income level, people making 3,000 RMB a month or less, especially women, because they are the big winners from this economic shift. The area that is the most pessimistic would actually be Chinese middle-class consumers. This is sort of the market that every analyst is trying to get companies to sell to. There are about 350 million people who make between six and 15,000 U.S. dollars a month. Uh, a year, sorry. But actually, these are the most pessimistic consumers. Their salaries are only growing about 5%, 10% a year. And so what's happening is their salaries aren't going up that much, but they are seeing that housing prices and car prices are continuing to soar. And so for the first time in a generation, a lot of middle-class consumers are telling us when we interview them that they're concerned that the lives of their children won't be as good as their own lives. And that's causing a lot of pessimism in the short term and a lot of fear. Um, and that's why the government is trying to move um, towards sort of reining in housing prices. I mean, you and I have talked for years how I expected housing prices to go up, and they have, because there's a lot of pent-up demand of a lot of people trying to buy homes. Strange, though. It seems like what you're saying is the middle class is suffering, but isn't it the middle class that buys homes? Um, right now, low income are. So I'll give a great example. I interviewed a girl. She's 27 years old. I've known her for about six years now. She's from Anhui. She's a waitress who makes 7,000 RMB a month. 7,000. Her husband um, set up a small company selling business cards. He makes about 8,000 RMB a month. And they just bought a 130 square meter home back in Anhui. So now they live in Shanghai, but they bought this home for the future for when they retire. Now what's important about this is this waitress told me that her entire housing complex is completely empty. 
because it's all been bought by Anhui migrant workers who are now working in Shanghai. They send their money back, they buy the home, and then they're going to wait. They're going to wait 5, 10, 15 years until they decide to move back home to be with their families. But in the interim, all of these units are empty. Now, she put um, 60% down uh, for a mortgage on her down payment. So what you're seeing is there are these ghost towns around the country, but a lot of them are actually paid for by people, and there's very little leverage buying them up. Very interesting. So if you could help us uh, target a few companies uh, either dealing with people at the high end or that blue-collar worker that you said feels pretty good, what would they be? What are the companies we should look out for? I think the company I'm really bullish on is actually an American one, but it's Starbucks. Um, So Starbucks, uh, China's become their second largest market in the world. They have about 30% margins here versus 22% in the United States. They're sort of becoming like the new Yum brand. So Yum has obviously had some issues with the supply chain in the last year. Their same-store sales are dropping. But Starbucks is growing really well. As the Chinese consumers evolve, they've sort of leapfrogged over KFC, uh, and they've now gone to Starbucks. The second thing that I'm really quite bullish on is the miner group from Thailand. Um, Aside from the the recent difficulties of the protests in Bangkok, if those get handled well, what you're going to see is the miner group's hotel chain is going to do very well because Chinese are going abroad. About 93 million traveled abroad last year. Um, We're expecting it to grow about 15 20% this year. And if Thailand's protests drop, and if it's true that they can get rid of the visa requirements for mainland Chinese citizens, then the minor group will do very well. But a lot depends on the protest. Okay, Sean, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. That is Sean Ryan, Managing Director of China Market Research Group. Call again now is 101.33. So, uh, sorry, sorry, 103.15. Sorry to give you a heart attack there. Uh, the euro trading 1.3667 US dollars. The Australian dollar 90 and a half cents and the renminbi 6.095. Good morning now to Robert Greaves, chairman and chief executive officer of Hamilton Advisors. Robert, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Journalists as big brands, an interesting notion. Give me a couple of interesting examples. Well, we've had at the Washington Post uh, Ezra Klein, a 29-year-old whiz who has a a political column called Wonk Blog. Uh, He's he's very widely followed. He's leaving the Washington Post to start a new firm uh, and a new blog. And he didn't didn't, uh, leave before asking the Post to invest in his new venture in an eight-figure investment which Jeff Bezos, the head of Amazon and the new owner of the Washington Post, declined to invest in his company. And um, But this follows, um, in 2006, uh, John Harris and Jim Vandehey were two very popular political reporters at the Post. They left to start a, a, a blog called Politico, which is now more closely followed than the Washington Post is. And what you're seeing is a bit of delamination in the business model of newspapers. You've had Kara Swisher and Walt Mossberg leave uh, the Wall Street Journal. They left their blog All Things D to start a new blog. Is Uh, this part and parcel (laughs) of a trend? Since news is ubiquitous, you get it on your phone, you get it on on all your devices, uh, that that the edge now is for people with either opinion 
or with a kind of um, contextual understanding of things that are happening. That's right. If you're, if you're a reporter with a proven track record and a following, you can go out and monetize your position uh, in a much better way with your own blog or your own organization than working for a newspaper. And the point here, Brian, is that legacy news organizations uh, need to find a way to tap into the success outside the old mo- models of ownership and not worry about the employer-employee relationship. And what you see, what some pundits are saying, is you might have a networked environment where there's, say, the Washington Post, but then there are a lot of blogs uh, that, that report to them outside the newspaper. Hmm. So another example might be Glenn Greenwald. Well, Glenn Greenwald, yes. Um, uh, he's, a, he's a bit of a special case because he was a lawyer. Uh, he had his own firm. Uh, but he went out on his own, and of course he's become very uh, famous for taking uh, Edward Snowden's uh, information and disseminating it through the Guardian newspaper, the Washington Post again, and now he's joined a new organization. So he is trying to also monetize his new fame and position. So what about Robert Greaves? Uh, you are a famous journalist. Uh, well, <laughs> it's a different line that you've gone, because you're more in, uh, in what would you say, investor relations or, or um, financial public, communications. Public, financial communications. Public right. relations, yeah, that's right. Um, but so I think what you're what you're going to see is uh, uh, yes, I think you could see a, a world in which bloggers uh, become journalists or say they're journalists. It's going to be a much more decentralized world going forward, and it's going to make the consumer uh, more confused. It's going to be more difficult in the absence of a legitimate newsroom to determine who you're going to follow. Taking a step back then, do you think that this is bad for journalism? I think it's probably in the long run going to lead to some choppy skies and some rough patches. I don't think it's going to be very good for journalism. Um, uh, The reason being you think there's a little bit too much interpretation, too much opinion masquerading as journalism? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I guess um, people think they're pretty smart, though, and, you know, they probably... Uh, are looking for some guidance. They know they can get um, news, and then they want to get a take on the news. Don't you think that people sort of understand the difference? Um, you you would uh, you would like to think so. I, I hope so. Over time, I mean, there's still let's let's not forget there's still uh, organizations like the New York Times, which uh, their their front page is followed all over the world. The way they play up news, what they think is important. In fact, you can go to the website of the New York Times and download every day a PDF of their uh, front page. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting trend. Um, We'll see. I mentioned Michael Chugani here. Just uh, a few people in Hong Kong getting out and about, blogging, uh, writing newspaper columns, turning up on the radio, television. Uh, So we'll see how that goes, Robert. But thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. That's Robert Greaves, chairman and chief executive of Hamilton Advisors. Just wanted to slip in uh, in short form. I had actually intended uh, to play a little bit longer piece for you from Anthony Nightingale. Uh, We'll go back to that for just a minute or two here. We caught up with Anthony Nightingale, the former chief of Jardine Matheson, and we asked him, how does business look in Hong Kong as we move into 2014? He spoke with my colleague, Francis Moriarty. The background is that we still have a Hong Kong economy that's working pretty well. Of course, we're very dependent on continued growth in China. And in that respect, I was pretty encouraged by what came out of the third party plenum the other day. I think there are some significant reforms that are being put forward for China, which will be of great benefit to that country and therefore its economy, and that will spin off on Hong Kong. 
If we look into Hong Kong, clearly though we have many advantages and we have sectors that are working very well, we still have a number of serious social issues. Among those issues are the widening wealth gap, the fact that there are too many people at the lower end of our society who really have not benefited from Hong Kong's great prosperity, and they need to be looked after more. We also still have a housing situation, which though plenty of effort is going into resolving it, it's not yet fixed, particularly in terms of affordable housing. And therefore, I would say two key issues on that side, on the social side, and of course they impact the economy too, are more help for those at the uh, least advantaged positions in society and even bigger effort to uh, move forward in resolving the housing question. That's Anthony Nightingale, the former chief of Jardine Matheson. As I mentioned, uh, he's sort of calling for an increase in welfare payments there, and he's also looking for more education credits for the less well-off. Well, that's the program for today. Um, major sell-off underway in Japan. The Nikkei down 386, 2.5%. Stocks are higher in Seoul and in Australia, slightly lower, down about 1%. Weather today, mainly fine and dry, cool in the morning. Maximum temperature today, just 16 degrees, but fine and dry for the next few days. Eight thirty-one. the news with Samantha Butler. A senior member of the Syrian opposition says the United States and Britain have warned that they'll rethink support for Syria's national coalition if it fails to attend peace talks in Geneva next week. The comments appear to reflect intense behind-the-scenes pressure on the coalition, which votes on the matter on Friday. Here's the BBC's Bridget Kendall. Speaking in London, the official said both the UK and the US were adamant that the Syrian National Coalition must go to Geneva next week or risk losing the backing they'd enjoyed so far. But it's clear that persuading the Syrian opposition to agree to come face to face with President Assad's government is proving incredibly difficult. And if, when it meets on Friday,